Hey fam, welcome back to another episode of We're Going There. Hey, let me start off and just say thank you for all your fun social media tags and photos and videos. It has been so incredibly fun and it's an honor to see how and where you're listening to the podcast. Before we get started, let me congratulate Shanae Horton for winning the hour-long closet console with last week's guest, Zoe Bell Wattis. Your post was so sweet and kind, and I just want to honor you and the life transformation that is happening inside and outside of your body. Congrats to you, sister. Can't wait to see your cute outfits. Okay, as we dive into this episode, I've got to keep it real. This podcast is layered and complex, so let me try to break this down as simply as possible. Today, we're talking about deconstruction but specifically deconstructing our faith. I first understood the term deconstruction when I was in college and unpacked it more as I was in graduate school. Many Christians will throw around this word and it's kind of annoying to me because it sounds like they're trying to be progressive and avant-garde. But really, this is not stemmed in spiritual deconstruction. This actually came from some deep, deep processing and thinking from French philosopher Jacques Derrida. And he, my friends, he was influenced by a French linguist by the name of Ferdinand de Saussure and a literary theorist by the name of Roland Barthes. Now, I would read their stuff in college, and it blew my mind at the depths of what they're trying to unpack. But in its simplest form, and again, I'm, I said that it's layered and complex, but let me just try to make it as simple as possible. In its simplest form, deconstruction can be regarded as a criticism of the idea of true forms, which take precedence in appearances. Okay, hold on. Stay with me. Deconstruction instead places the emphasis on appearance, so how things appear to be. And deconstruction argues that language, especially big ideal concepts such as truth and justice, are irreducibly complex, unstable, and impossible to determine. So hold on. Let me make this applicable to us today. Why does this matter? Deconstruction argues some of the core tenets of Christian faith, such as truth and justice. The process of deconstruction is the process of unpacking the elements of faith that we've gathered over the years and examining it on a deep level. So for some that were raised in healthy Christian environments, you'll find deconstruction as delightful as Marie Kondo-esque tidying up of your faith. And for others, you will need what feels like a wrecking ball to tear things down to the ground and you might experience a sense of loss. And this is where I want to pause. Now, so many Christians, as I'm talking to in their 30s, in their 40s, even in their 20s, are singing what sounds to be like a spiritual Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball, where they are completely deconstructing their faith from top to bottom. But I want to pause here because if we deconstruct a house, let's say the house that you live in, we need to be smart enough to know that we must rebuild something in its place. Otherwise, we will be homeless and exposed to the environment. Well, the same is true of our spiritual deconstruction. Y'all, we must put in the work and rebuild what has been torn down. Otherwise, we are spiritually homeless and exposing ourselves to the environment. Last week, this question came across my desk and I thought it was so worth answering publicly. The question states, do you have suggestions for how to get back to your faith? What I mean is this, I've gone through the whole deconstruction process after leaving my church a couple years ago, but I've deconstructed myself into the dirt and I somehow feel like I've lost my connection with God. It's not like I don't believe in God, but I feel like I'm at the complete avoidance stage. This is so different from how I used to be. I used to love the Bible and worship, and I was deeply passionate about studying the Bible at one point, but now I don't even have the desire to do that. Any suggestions on how to start the reconstruction after total deconstruction? If this question resonates with you, let me first say, hi, hello, you're welcome. My name is Bianca and you are safe here. For many of us, though, grief and frustration and the desire for answers provide the momentum to lead us into deconstruction. But then after we're there for a while, we get exhausted. The work of digging up painful memories, looking for cracks in foundational beliefs, realizing the extent of damage that's been done to us maybe by 
people in church or out of church or even trauma, that could leave us laying flat in a pile of religious debris, clueless about where to go next. But for you right now, I offer these options. Please listen, please listen. This is not an assignment, but ideas. Ways to to get you to sit up in the middle of the carnage or the wreckage and look around and say, what could be next for my faith? And ways to reconnect to health and wholeness in the middle of the rubble. As you listen, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. I want you to feel hopeful. As you listen, I pray that your soul perks up and you think to yourself, hey, I could do that. That might be a good place to start. Here are four things that will help you rebuild after deconstruction. Number one, rest. Yes, friends, you heard me. And if you listened to Andy Down's podcast from two weeks ago, you know that I've really been fighting for Sabbath. I'm going to encourage you to take a break from inner work. Ugh, this feels scary to say, but it's okay to be shallow for a night or a day or a weekend or a week. Take a nap with no guilt. Read a book that has nothing to do with God. Watch things that make you laugh. Go for a prayer walk. There is no urgency to rebuild. But friends, we have to do the work to rebuild. Now, if you're exhausted from the deconstruction, hear God whispering to you today, hey, you over there, I see you. It's okay to take a break. Come, come sit with me, eat some carbs. And when you're ready to ask some hard questions, I'll be here. There's no rush. Number two, be honest. When you're ready, a great go-to conversation started with God is honesty. No real relationship with him can be built on anything else. Are you not sure he's there? Speak it out. Are you not sure what to believe anymore? List all the reasons why. What do you feel guilty about? What do you wish were true about God? What questions do you have for God? What do you wish were different about yourself? But I warn you, friend, the flip side of honesty requires the courage to be honest with yourself as God reveals things to you. Are you becoming aware of unhealthy patterns in your own thinking or relationships? Write those down. Is what you're feeling all false guilt or is there some loving connection from the Holy Spirit mixed in? Is there anyone whom you need to apologize to? What if you were really afraid of what would happen if you got close to God? Why do you want to avoid him? All these questions are fodder, which leads me to point number three. Be curious. So remember, the first one was rest. The second one is honest. Now I'm encouraging you, be curious. There's no map for this, uh, which is lovely for some and terrifying for others. If you need direction, here's a good place to start. Let curiosity be your teacher. In addition to the questions that I asked above, What if you were to begin to say, God, what ways are you going to speak to me? God, where are you calling me to serve you differently? God, how will you show up today and whisper your truths to me through your word and through your people? And lastly, which is my favorite, is dream. The word deconstruction makes us think of a building being torn down. So it's natural for us, especially for us Western thinkers, to think that reconstruction will result in a brand new and improved building. But what if reconstruction looks like you going from a Sunday school church faith to a life empowered by the Spirit of God, where you find yourself passionately worshiping Him in a way that you never had, where you are so desperately seeking God to speak to you and reveal Himself to you, where you ask yourself, what if what I'm doing now pales in comparison to what God is asking me to do? On today's podcast, we talk to rapper, writer, and philanthropist Lecrae Moore. This man has more awards than his shelf can contain and has given back to the community in more ways than I can explain. You see what I did there? Y'all, I'm rapping. In his new book, I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith, Lecrae shares how he found the courage to stop ignoring his trauma and instead begin working through it step by step. 
He encourages readers to embrace their own healing and freedom so they can escape their despair, anxiety, doubt, and fear and live authentically with a real sense of purpose. Lecrae, I am so excited that you are here on the show. Thank you for taking a few moments out of your very busy schedule to be on the podcast with us today. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Okay. Clearly I have like no chill. Cause I said, be with us on the podcast. It's me, myself and I in my office right now, but it's with us. So I'm glad that you're here. All the people listening. All the, yes. Speak that faith, brother. Speak that faith. Come on. Yes. Uh, listen, as always, for those that are uh, fans of the podcast, they know that I always like to have a few, um, I call them one questions. Like what's the one thing. And so to get the party started and to get people who may not know you to know you just just a little bit before we go into some of the stuff that I feel is really important to the conversation. Can I ask you three quick fire questions? Come on. Okay. If you can listen to one artist for the rest of your life, who would it be? One artist for the rest of my life. Um, probably Lauren Hill. Oh, listen. Okay. Side note, this is quick fire, but we were launching a series at church entitled the miseducation of love because her album to this day, it just speaks to my heart. So I'm with you on that. I would say Whitney Houston, but I hold it down for Lauren. Yes. If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Just one. This is like a prison sentence and you've got to pick your one meal. Oh man. Okay. Okay. It's going to be, this is crazy. I know it's crazy. But if I got to eat this forever, I've never not had a slice of Chuck E. Cheese pizza. And I rebuke the brother in the name of Jesus. That trash is cardboard. I like it. I'm weird. Every Italian know. listener right now is like having their Nona roll over in the grave. I know. It's bad. I, there, I know there's Joe's Pizza in New York. But for some reason, I like... I like Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, you know what? No shade. You're my new friend. I got to make you like me here. I got to make you like me. Okay, so uh, last last quick fire question. If there is one place that you would go to right now, anywhere in the world, what is the one place that you would want to go to? Ooh, one place anywhere in the world. Um, yikes, Brazil. Yes, come on with that little Latin, some Latin love in the house. Okay, listen, um, I think that the topic at hand is one that we're going to dive into. Um, in the intro, I was able to brag on you and talk about why this topic is so important for our day and age. But you said this quote, I want to show you my scars as proof that wounded people can heal. And it cut real deep. And so I hope my big prayer is that through your um, not just your wounds, but your scars as testament of God's healing power that your life of being restored can translate to people even right now on the podcast. So uh, I want to talk a little bit before we dive into some of the things that I have read and listened to, not just for the podcast, but for life. I am a fan. No, I'm, I'm not even embarrassed about it, but I want to talk about a little bit about mental health. Um, yeah. You speak a lot about this and as an African-American man living in the United States, why is the discussion of mental health and counseling so important in this day and age? Oh man, there's a, there's a million reasons. One, I would say, you know, the, the saying is this, when America has a cold, black America has the flu. Yep. And so because of the historical lack of resources and education in certain areas, Typically, you know, you're you're last on a totem pole to to you know go get this 
new opportunity, which is, you know, therapy or mental health services. And so what begins to happen is um, the story of a guy, John Henry, and John Henry was a railroad worker and he was he was the fastest, most strongest railroad worker ever. And then they invented this new machine that could do his job. And the, and, and the idea was that, you know, we didn't need John Henry anymore because we got this machine. And so he went, in order to prove he was still valuable, he went against the machine and he won, but he died after. And I think that's the plight of, of many, you know, Black Americans is that they've adopted this mindset that we're just going to plow through this. We plow through slavery, we plow through Jim Crow, we plow through civil rights, we'll plow through whatever's going on and not deal with the trauma that, that is associated with it. And so I think mental health and, and therapy are extremely necessary in this time period. So the reason why I wanted to include the caveat of as a Black African American man is because I think that our cultures, our subcultures within American culture or just Western culture is it it's different. So as a Latina, I think that growing up, it was very mystified, like only certain, only those people went to therapy, only those people went to counseling. And so what myth would you debunk about therapy in your own journey? Now, of course you can't speak for all of black America, but for your own journey, what, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think the typical thing would be like, it's for weak people. Like you must be weak. Like you don't have any strength, you know, because I, whether justified or unjustified, there were a lot of friends and family members who went to prison. And and in prison, it was all about your mental stamina, mental strength. And so to have to sit in a psychiatrist chair meant that you would never survive prison. And so you can't have that type of vulnerability or chinking your armor. And uh, it's really a myth and it's terrible that, that it's a sign of weakness when really it's a sign of strength. Mm. Okay, so I've seen you go on a journey of deconstructing, reconstructing, reorganizing your own faith. What brought this on and where are you at in the journey? Now, remember, is no bars held. You can say yeah. anything and I want you to feel free to like, even if you're still wrestling with stuff, it's like a judgment-free zone up in here. Yeah, well, historically, I became a Christian. Um, it was not really, it was not a nominational. It was within an African-American context met some friends who were learning from a predominantly white pastor. I listened to some of the stuff he was teaching. I was like, wow, I never heard this before. I started sitting under that teaching. Um, and then that opened up me to a whole world of, you know, predominantly white evangelical spaces. And that's what I began to learn. And the, the issue was not that we both didn't love the Lord. The issue is that we came from different worlds and, and I knew all about your world, but you didn't know about mine. And, um, and so when Trayvon Martin uh, was killed, that affected me differently than it affected my white brothers and sisters. So I spoke up about that and, um, and I was met with backlash and I was confused. I was like, we're all family. What, is, what do you mean? What's going on? And I think that was the moment when I realized, oh, we come from different worlds. And I didn't, I was disoriented because I kept receiving so much backlash from my white Christian brothers and sisters. And I was like, yo, this is really confusing and disorienting. And I didn't have any other categories for God other than this kind of white evangelical space. So I thought this, like either, I know I'm not wrong. You know, first I thought I was wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm going crazy. Maybe I got something wrong. But then I'm like, no, I grew up with this. I know this is, this happens. Like I've, I've been the product of of a lot of these uh, racial issues. I've been uh, detained unfairly by police officers. I've experienced all this stuff. So I know I'm not crazy. So 
if these people who I trust and, and I listen to don't believe this and they're so angry at me, then something, I don't know where else to go. So I felt like there's, I, I made a people wound, a God wound. Mm. People had harmed me. God didn't harm me, but I, I blamed God for it. And that made, that pushed me away from God because his people were acting in a way that I just could not understand and, and function in. Let me talk to you about better help. In 2021, it's definitely okay to talk about our mental and emotional happiness. Humans aren't meant to keep everything inside and therapy helps. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, don't be ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to worry about seeing anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. See if it's for you, because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and we're going there. Listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WGT. That's betterhelp.com slash WGT, for we're going there. So I think a lot of nomenclature and language around deconstructing and deconstructing our faith leaves it with this sense of deconstruction. And if you deconstruct something, you're left with a bunch of like rubble and that could turn into trash really quick. So there has to be this balance of reconstructing. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but where you are now, because clearly you've done some reconstruction and I see it. I, I, I love it. I love that you're putting new language, new nomenclature, a new verbiage around what it means, what faith looks like in our context today. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, historically, I, I, I didn't realize that I was just, I just understood a Western context of what faith was. I didn't mm -hmm. know that faith was a global thing, that, that it was ancient and global, right? It's not Western, it's not American, it's not European, it is ancient and it is Western. It didn't start in 1776, it started thousands of years ago. So for me now, I had to take myself out of that Western context and I had to start looking at it from a more global perspective and saying, oh, I was taught that anything that didn't fit in this box is wrong. Now I'm, I feel free to go to all of the boxes and listen and learn and say, that's profound, didn't know that. Um, I may not subscribe to everything there, but I'm open to hearing and perceiving. And then more than anything, this is something I don't tell a lot of people because I'm still in that process, but I've been going back to the ancient origins of it all and just, mm just realizing that this is an ancient Jewish faith that I subscribe to. So why am I not going back to those historical roots and trying to understand it from this Eastern context that it was communicated from initially? So that's part of the reconstruction. How it affects my life now is that uh, my decisions are more in line with what I feel affect everyone in a global perspective, not just what this box says things should, the way things should be done. 
Oh, I love that. Okay. So you, you interface with a lot of, I mean, multi-generational, but I mean, there is a huge following of young people that absolutely love you. And you, what problem are you seeing as you're talking about your own faith journey and what this looks like now, what's the problem that you're seeing for the next generation when it comes to faith? What I see is that there, it's not worth it. You know, the, the, the arguments, the fussing, the fighting, the bickering, the politics to them, it's not worth it. And so they don't see any point in, in engaging it. And, and I think one of two things happens. One is people throw the whole thing away and say, not even fooling with faith because it's a mess over there. Or two, they deeply personalize it when it's not meant to be experienced at this individual level. It's supposed to be collective and, uh, and, 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 and community oriented. And so what ends up happening when you spend time just trying to figure it out on your own is you, you develop a lot of warped perspectives and stuff that's just like, ah, I should have bounced that off of somebody because that's not the way it was meant to be experienced. Um, and you don't have an appreciation for other people. You just kind of have this kind of your own little bubble. And so I feel like that's what's happening is you get isolated into your world or you just are done with it all together because it's just not worth it. It's like, oh, what is that? that I don't want to be involved in that. Okay. So do you think that we were talking about the conversation of like faith and mental health? Like, do you think that um, there is a correlation? Is there a connection point between your faith, like a healthier sense of faith and your efforts within like counseling or mental health? Yeah, absolutely. At first I was, you know, kind of frustrated and I was like, look, the church needs to think about mental health more seriously. But then I realized it's actually, we need mental health specialists to, to want to equip um, those in the faith community more. We need more of that because they're the experts. They have the insight, the wisdom, mm -hmm. and the information. And so if you're a therapist or a mental health practitioner, like, please use your, your abilities to inform the faith community about what's really going on, because otherwise people are going to draw these conclusions that are not helpful and are not healthy. Mm. And I was one of them. You know, I was one of those people who, before I had experienced acute anxiety, I would say, be anxious for nothing. That's what God says. And it's like, that's not the type of anxiety we're talking about here. Mm. We're not talking about, you know, worrying about stuff that you can stop worrying about. We're talking about, you know, uh, mental health and disorders that can create anxiety that you can't control. So it's really informing the faith communities about what's going on so that they can speak from a, a more authoritative and educated perspective. So tell me something that counseling did for you that you didn't expect. Oh my gosh. Honestly, you know, one of the biggest things that counseling did for me that I didn't expect was to heal some historical wounds. Um, and the reason why I didn't expect that was because I didn't know I had those wounds. Mm. And so that, that happens a lot of times is you don't realize that the decisions you're making, the actions you're taking are because some things that happened to you in your past and you haven't addressed them, yeah. right? You just haven't even thought about them because you're just kind of plowing through. I, I, I'd say like you're, you're just shoving stuff in the closet. And, and then one day the whole door collapses and you're like, what is happening? It's like, well, you never dealt with any of those things. You know, you never folded up that shirt and put it on the shelf. You never looked at that, that thing, that relic and said, oh, I don't even need this anymore and got rid of it. You just kept throwing stuff in the closet until eventually it exploded. And that's when you have a mental health crisis or breakdown. And so what counseling did was it allowed me to go back, fold up some stuff, 
put some books on the shelf and get rid of some stuff. And now I, I can process things a lot better than I, I, I historically would have. So I don't know if this is the case for you, but like the creative process, the writing process, specifically like birthing a book, it's like birthing a child. You put all your love, your heart, your attention into it. So in the book, I'm restored. And I, for those listening, what more information is going to be the show notes. There's a link that you can get it because it was a phenomenal book. I thought you married your creative strengths as well as touching on really hard topics so beautifully. So in the creative process, sometimes it's like you're sowing seed that you don't necessarily always see the fruit. Like what, how are people's lives different? How are they touched? But tell me about a person who touched your heart, whether it was through your music or your uh, initiatives locally in Atlanta or your writing and how their life was changed because of it. Like a story that touched you because of the art that you're producing. Yeah. I, I think of, um, I call her Miss April. So I, I helped to found a school in Atlanta called Peace Preparatory Academy. There was no school in this community for over 20 years. And so they badly needed school, just really disenfranchised, marginalized area, a lot of drugs and prostitution, crime and whatnot. And so the school was developed to take care of the whole family and um, you know help people thrive. I did a campaign uh, through a, a phone per phone company where we were like kind of you know giving out money, and so I was just looking for different candidates. And there was a parent at the school that had come on the radar that was going through some tough stuff, and um, and we ended up you know giving her some money. Well, she she breaks down, she cries, and then I hear more of her story. And man, it just, it, it like really helped me see like, okay, more, what else can be done? And then I reached out to some people and they said, hey, we're trying to put her in a better situation and move her out of her apartment and um, into a house, you know, now that she's, she's been keeping a job steady and having some stability. And I was like, I want to help her move. And so I get over there and she's got four kids. Wait, time out. Like you? With like your hands lefty and righty? My hands. Oh, oh, okay. I, I took my boys too. I took my kids. Okay. I had a, I, my son was 11 and eight at the time. And uh, and I took them over there. One bedroom apartment, four kids. Mm. And we move her stuff out and we move her into the house. And she's just beaming. She's never had her own home. She's never had a space like this. Her kids have their, you know, I mean, a couple of them share a room, but they just had space. They weren't all sleeping on top of each other for the first time, you know, just to see her thrive, to see her working now and to figure out what she's going to do. That type of stuff, man, really just encourages my heart. And, you know, it's not always pretty and happy, but it, it's, it's a journey. And those moments in a journey are keep me, keep me going. Uh, I remember saying this somewhere, I can't remember where, but it said the best and greatest gift that you can give to your loved ones is the healthiest version of you. And I feel like your mental health journey and just you speaking so honestly and openly has been like an an overflow into the lives of so many people. I, for one, am so grateful for your sacrifice. I'm so grateful for your honesty. I'm so grateful for your transparency. But as we close up the podcast, if you were me, what would you ask yourself that I did not ask you? Huh. If I was you, what would you ask me that, man, you know, I think I, I'm always in the center of some sort of controversy for whatever reason. <laughs> I'm here for it. It's like, I grew up on novellas, Spanish soap opera. So I'm like, Ooh, what is he going to throw at us now? <laughs> I saw I your Karen video. I was here for it. 
Loved it. <laughs> Some people just, they don't have a sense of humor. That was funny. You got jokes. They don't have a sense of, you got no jokes. Sense of humor and no sense of nuance. Ooh. And when I say that, I mean like, like, oh, there's so many different factors that play into this. Um, we just love to run with the headlines. And I think that's unfortunate. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, give the person the opportunity to, I always want to hear what they say about whatever controversy that they're involved in. That's what I always want to know. Like, like, oh my gosh, so-and-so did this. Well, what did they say about it? I want to hear what they've had to say versus like what everyone else has to say about the particular thing. So I guess I would just say this. I don't know. I maybe just say, you know, like, what well, if somebody was asking me, look, why do you think you're always at the center of controversy? And I would say probably because one, I'm always rushing to serve, rushing to help, not always processing what it may cost me. Mm. Um, and that's my gift and my curse. You know what I'm saying? Is that sometimes getting out there, putting yourself on the line is going to cost you. And people are going to look at you crazy. People are going to say, man, why did you do this? Or what are, were you thinking here? And honestly, it was, I wasn't thinking about me. I was thinking about serving somebody else. And, um, and to me, that's the essence of my faith. It's absorbing other people's pain and suffering and not saying I, I aim to do that, but just saying that comes with the territory of being a leader, being a servant is that, man, you're going to endure um, a lot of shots because you're, you're, you're trying to serve. And so I would just, you know, I say, that's why I probably at the center of stuff because I'm, I'm trying to help when you're trying to help. It doesn't always end up pretty. You're a soul paramedic. And I, for one, am so grateful for the spiritual CPR, the rescue breathing, the resuscitation that you are doing in so many people's lives, minds, hearts, and souls. I'm so grateful for your time. Blessings upon you, your family, all your creative endeavors, and keep on creating drama. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. For those on the spiritual journey of figuring out your faith, let me say, don't give up. Your labor will not be in vain. I firmly believe that when you seek God, you will find him. When you call to him, he will answer. As always, my podcast friends, let me say how much I appreciate you. Your reviews and subscription help get this show out there. Will you do me a favor? Will you share this podcast with your friends who might find it helpful? If you leave a review or subscribe to the show, take a snapshot of that and email it to podcast at inthenameoflove.org and you'll receive a free Bible study through the Book of Ruth, including PDF Bible study guide and six video sessions as my gift to you. I love you, or as I like to say, it's me, myself, and I in my office right now, but it's with us. And I can't wait to chat next week.